How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Size Show podcast, episode 119. It's a bit of a milestone, Zeke. It, not... uh, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's a different kind of milestone. Yeah, it's, it's not um, number-based, is... but it's something. Um, yeah, so we actually went 119 episodes without doing a single remote recording, which, you know, like everyone, <laughs> every other podcast that's ever existed has probably had to do one at some point or another. Um, we were really lucky in WA. We mostly got to work around it. I think the period of time in which we were in lockdown last time, we had so many pre-recordings. Yeah, yeah. Um, we actually got through that because I was supposed to go away and we did all those pre-recordings, whereas this one kind of came out of the blue and here we are now doing our first ever Facebook Zoom podcast. Yeah, well, we're not really using Facebook or Zoom. <laughs> well, we're using Messenger. We're, That's basically Messenger. Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for those who uh, either aren't aware or they're listening to this podcast much in the future, uh, yeah, we've had another snap lockdown. And this, you're right, Zach, it's the first time ever it's actually forced us to record remotely, which is a bit strange. But you know what? Our programs, they they seem to work almost immediately. We didn't have to do much troubleshooting. So hopefully I didn't no, jinx us. No, it was us. pretty chill. We and, actually uh, spent most of the time just chatting. Yeah, which is good. Like uh, a, It feels like yeah. nothing's changed. Well, a big couple of weeks, um, so uh, yeah, we're ready to get stuck in, talk about some movies. Yeah. It's a big week, um, we're recording this obviously on Anzac Day, which is an important yes, Australian and uh, New Zealand holiday, which will tie into the second half of the show, um, but yeah, this is also Oscar Eve. Yes, it is. Oscar um, Day. Which I'm very, sort of. I'm very sad about because of the snap lockdown, um, the Rev... Uh, the rev screening, although we're going to do a backlog, we're going to put it on the big screen that I paid for. Um, it got cancelled. They can't do it anymore. So yeah. I'm going to have to figure out how to watch it from home. But apparently, Channel Seven Two <clears throat> is it Seven Two? Is that what it is? Apparently, yep. they they are going to play it live or they're going to air it. I don't know because I couldn't figure it out last year. So no, that's fair. I had to go on my laptop when Parasite won Best Picture, for example. But that that's okay. Well. That's okay. Before we jump into that, though, Jake, mm. are you ready for your 2019 film quote? I am. I am. Let's do it. So, very, Jake's very been recent. doing pretty well. He's, uh, if uh, I recall, six, six, six and two. Six and two. That's it. Um, so, he's going for seven and two here, going for pushing a distinction average. Uh, oh, that's true. <laughs> it's now or never. So, this quote is from a 2019 film. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. Once it's upon a time in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, didn't even get to the end of the quote. Nah, um, dude, I've Jake... seen that film so many times. It was That was never going to pass me. <laughs> yeah, so that is uh, Put You at 7 and 2. Uh, that is, of course, Quentin Tarantino's ninth film. Yeah, I think well, it gets dicey with the Kill Bills counting as one film. He builds it as his ninth film, if, I, yes. if I'm correct. Um, yeah. So we'll go off. We'll go off the director's self-proclaimed <laughs> film yeah, exactly. numbering system. Um, but yeah, obviously it's the build ninth uh, film from Quentin Tarantino, and yeah, it's a bit of a cracking film that I've only seen. I want to say once or twice. Mm. I think I've only seen it in the cinema. I have it on Blu-ray. I'm like staring at it right now. You absolutely um, have to rewatch it. Yeah, it's just it's it's funny. I've been meaning to watch it. Um, so maybe uh, on an upcoming, we haven't actually done 
We did do Tarantino on a on a director's corner. We did Pulp we did, Fiction, um, yeah. We've already Pulp coined Fiction it. very early on, so maybe it might be worth having a retro. We also did Once Upon a Time on the show too, so um, we we got to do Reservoir Dogs. That's easily the next one we have to do. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I still haven't. I've ticked off most of his uh, filmography. Don't haven't done the Kill Bills. They're the only and Death Proof. Mm. They're the other, but. Death Proof is probably the most elusive one for most people to watch, I believe. Yeah, and I think he's even come out and said himself it's probably his least favourite or his least good film, which I don't even know if I agree with. I have a soft spot for Death Proof. I think it's great. There we go. Well, speaking of films, Jack, have you caught any films or shows in the last week? Um, Yeah, so typically my answer, like the last few weeks, would have just been not really. (laughs) But, of course, we went into the snap lockdown um, I had an all-day gig on Saturday. It was basically going to be a 12-hour shoot, um, including travel, that got completely canned. Or rather, I um, the wedding still occurred, but I was asked not to go because yep. I, well, both of us live in a suburb where really the snap lockdown is kind of happening because of the suburb that we both live in. So um, exactly I, was, right. I was respectively asked to not go to this gig. <laughs> So I was like, you know what? Make lemonade out of the situation. So I watched a bunch of stuff in the last couple of days because of the lockdown. I finished Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which... I, too, have finished that. Oh, sweet. I didn't know that. Yeah, I uh, finished it this morning. There you go. you got to log it on Letterboxd. Oh, it's on Letterboxd. Can you do yeah, that? Yeah, and, and WandaVision. They're both up. Yeah. But, Might yeah. have to do that. Um, I've been uh, just forgetting to do all of the, the logging sometimes, so... Uh... Yeah, no, it's, um, uh, what did you think of, uh, the show overall? So, like I said, I watched the first two episodes, like, as they came out, and we talked about it on our Memories of Murder episode when Steven was on, we sort of all talked about, I think the impression was none of us were really that into it, and Mm -hmm. I stopped watching it after the second episode, I just completely lost interest, I found that the performances and the direction some of it was forced and a bit cheesy i know like oh look anthony mackie sebastian sand they have chemistry they want to recreate that can you move your seat up moment from civil war so this is why the show exists and i just wasn't into any of that gotta say started watching it binging from episodes three to six and by the fourth episode i was completely swayed i was like okay i actually like this a lot more now and i think the reason is because I found, well, two things. Number one, the show starts to take itself more seriously, if you would agree with either of these two things. And the second one is that the themes that the show was kind of touching on in the first couple of episodes became much more honed in and focused. So all the stuff with, uh, you know, having like this radical group and the influence that they have and, you know, the government desperately trying to find this new leader who's maybe unfit it is maybe too obsessed with the label as opposed to the responsibility and kind of goes a bit insane because of it. Like all of these sort of ideas I found were much more interestingly explored by the fourth episode. So by the time I got to the end of the series, I was like, okay, I'm actually pretty lukewarm on this. Like I still have issues with some of that stuff of like, uh, this exchange is awkward. This exchange is awkward. But overall I came to like ultimately what the show is about. And I don't want to spoil too much because we're going to talk about that in our eventual Black Widow episode. But I did generally like a lot of the themes they ended up exploring. 
Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, I actually, I felt pretty positive about the show. Um, I don't think it was obviously trying to do anything too distinct from like the MCU mold that we're used to of seeing. Course, yeah. Um, but there were some really um, strong moments. I think the finale was pretty strong, all things considered. Um, I like some of the uh, theologies that I think I expressed that on the episode that Stephen was on, mm. like some of the ideologies and theologies that were exploring the the world of, of sort of Thanos' legacy. I, I think that that was really awesome. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I can, I, I feel like some bits were rushed. Um, I'm a little, I like Wyatt Russell's performance. I think he's excellent. I think he's so good. Um, I just think he doesn't get enough time Mm. to really kind of have the arc that he has. Um, I think he really does take quite a big backseat to Sebastian Stan and, and Anthony Mackie's performances, and it almost the show might have almost benefited from having an extra two or three episodes just to give that little bit more um, depth and a bit more time for Wyatt Russell's character to really come to fruition, to really have his turning point, because I think he kind of gets billed as kind of a, a, a laughing stock um, for a good majority of the show... And then there's a moment where he goes from zero to a hundred, and I, I think that the transformation's not subtle, um, and it's a little too overt. And I th- and I think his his character then obviously flipping back at the 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 other end of the season, or sort of flipping back. Um, it all happened a little too fast for me. Mm. I feel like um, the show would have seriously benefited from having an extra episode or two to give a little bit more time to that because the stuff they needed to cover with, um, you know, Falcon and, and Winter Soldier's character, you know, Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie's characters was very important, but it kind of overpowered this whole idea of what happens when the wrong person who's picked as Captain America mm. is picked. Yeah. Um, and for the most part, his, his evolution of character happens mostly off screen or in very small... I think there's a snippet scene in episode four, in episode four where he's there with the character. I can't remember his actual name, but he calls himself Battlestar. And they have an exchange, like a verbal exchange with each other, um, sort of talking about the character's ideologies. And, and it's a really strong and powerful scene. Um, and I wish the show had carried a bit more of that because by, you know... Your antagonist is only as good as the time you kind of give it. Um, you know, obviously your protagonist is only good, as good as the antagonist. And obviously there wasn't in this... Se- I'm going to call it season because I think this is a season, not a series. Yeah, so interesting you brought that up. Um, they just Marvel just submitted their Emmy uh, nomination picks and they yep. listed WandaVision as a limited series, but they listed yeah. this and Loki as a normal series. So yeah. I think you're this spot is on. definitely going to have a, a season two. Um, definitely by the ending, it was way more. Um, whereas One Division clearly has a definable end and is going to probably lead into the Doctor Strange film. Yeah, I imagine. Um, but this one definitely has enough to go off for a second season. Obviously, with how open so many of the characters' threads are. Uh, but 
I think, yeah, it would have benefited from having an extra episode or two to give at least John Walker's character way more depth because I feel like they give him a little bit at the start and a little bit at the end uh, or in the middle end and not a lot in the middle. Um, and that's probably because it's quite a jam-packed story. There's obviously a lot of character characters coming back with a lot of different uh, motives. Um and I think it it wasn't as cohesive a narrative as as Wonder Vision's narrative. I think they had a real strong focus in Wonder Vision, and it helped because I feel like everyone complimented that story. Whereas this, they were they, they had to introduce a lot of new characters. Whereas Wonder Vision doesn't really introduce that many new. I think it introduces one major new character, two. If, you know, you you count the antagonist of the show. Right, but but, but the um, assumption is you could almost see them not come back in a future movie like those new characters yeah yeah, yeah of course um whereas this one they had to introduce quite a, just knock me not knock me mic there Uh-oh. um <laughs> yeah sorry for that um yeah so i think that that's an important uh distinction uh between the two so it'll be interesting to see how how that pans out but yeah I... I enjoyed i enjoyed the most part yeah, I was going to say, I definitely still prefer WandaVision more just because I think they utilized yep. the fact that it was a television series and like the episode per episode storylines and how the, the cinematography changes, the set changes, the costume change. I love how they implemented all that. With this, while I did say in my review, I kind of just wish it was a film. This easily could have been a two-hour film, this six-episode story. I do also okay. still agree with you that I would have liked to see John Walker's character get a bit more... Because you're not wrong. There's sort of that moment in the locker room, a very literal locker room that feels very intentional, of him sort of being a bit open and, you know, having doubts about becoming this new icon or becoming this new label. And you're right. Very quickly that changes and he becomes who I assumed he would become as like someone who's a bit more deranged and is obsessed with his own title even if no one else respects him yet in that role. And I think you're right. We don't really see the moments when all of that changes. He just sort of becomes that. I didn't mind at first because I sort of loved just the idea of it, of him mm-hmm. being this kind of person. And I assume that he's not, you know, just going to turn good in the next film or is going to be good in the next project. I'm ass- I'm assuming that he's still going to be this deranged problem, that like an antagonist in the future. And that's interesting because it's hard to say if there was an antagonist in this show because, you know, you have, I forget her name, but sort of the leader of of the the radical group, I guess she was sort of the antagonist, but there were so many scenes that where she was talking about her perspective and you could totally believe her perspective, and which I think was a big part of the show is understanding each other's um, sort of issues, understanding each other as opposed to just villainizing everyone. And that's part of the Falcon's big speech in, in episode six that there is no traditional antagonist. At least I didn't feel that way, but does that mean John Walker's going to become one as opposed to just turning into the good guy? I don't know. This is all stuff we could see happening in the future. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see. I, maybe. I, I really was a little befuddled by the ending because he kind of has like a moment where he really does put people first and... He really has, like, a heroic moment. And I don't know 
and then he ends up kind of assisting, obviously, um, you know, Falcon and and and, and Winter Soldier and. And it's kind of interesting because, I, yeah, I really feel like there should have been more fleshed out time. And I really thought that, yeah, he was going to become this um, sort of lead antagonist. But he really doesn't do that. And I, I'm I'm intrigued to see where it goes. Um, I think that the character of Zemo is probably going to play a pretty big part in the second season of the show. Um, if they do do a second season, I think the ending definitely suggests that. Um, it was a good show. Um, I think the second season's warranted. I wouldn't say it was an excellent show. I think it, it did suffer from having... I mean, it might not have been shorter cumulatively with WandaVision, but it needed an extra episode or two. I and think it I was think... like 40, 50 minutes shorter, technically. Okay. I think so. I think it would have seriously benefited from having that extra 40 or 50 minutes um, because not every episode needed to have set pieces. And in terms of, like, budgetary considerations, like, shows like... I mean, if you talk about superhero shows, up until, you know, Disney have got in with these these MCU shows, you know, you had shows like Daredevil and, and basically the Netflix quartet that they, they released of different... Um, shows, they all had, you know, 35, 40 minute episodes and they made them more for TV and they managed to flesh those actors and those characters out a lot more because they were given a lot more time. And I think that, I think obviously this might have to do with a probably cost of actors because trying to get an act, these actors to be um, doing you know, 10 episode shows is probably a lot more costly. And then they, they want them to look like movies. Like they want them to look, which is the diff, the, the key difference, I think. So the, cause the budget for these shows are, is crazy. Um, so it would be, I think it'd be nice for them to take a little bit more time. It's like the episode when they're in, um, Madra, Madripoor and it's the three of them with, um, you know, um, Carter's, granddaughter and and it's a bit more of a character it's a bit more of a character episode it's less budget more character and it's a shame that they didn't give john walker an episode like that like we really didn't get to see um a lot of his backstory or a lot of you know he talks about some of the shocking things he had to do in in afghanistan maybe a maybe a flashback scene there might have assisted um all things considered so Mm. Um, I'm open to a second season. I liked bits. I didn't like other bits. Um, I'm with you. It could have been a movie. Um, but, and then I, I'm a little confused with Mackie's sort of turn from being anti Cap America to Cap America. Um, in terms of sort of the ideologies, cause I found that really interesting that, you know, especially with the sort of um, African-American sort of connotations that the show brought and discussion points that they brought. Um, it was interesting that he assumed the mantle. But then he, I think they kind of balanced that out with that last scene with him talking to the, the representatives. I think that was a really strong scene. So I, I think the shift for him, and I, I think we're well past the point of trying to not spoil too much... But- <laughs> But um, <laughs> Sorry. Ah, it's, it's all good. But um, I'm, people are up to date on these shows anyway. But I think 
the whole shift comes from that line he says um, at the end of the fifth episode on the boat of his sister where he basically says something like, you know, oh, people have suffered, but, you know, um, would their suffering be in vain if someone like me decided to give up? I can't remember the line, but it was something along mm-hmm. those lines um, right before he gets, like, the new Recondon suit. Um, so I, I I bought it. I bought it because that, that was the journey he went on. And the, almost that entire episode, speaking of every episode having a set piece, that entire episode was just, like, people on a boat building stuff and chatting. <laughs> so so yeah. I was like, I actually kind of like that a lot of just, that was the break that I, that I like to see before the big finale. It's the, uh, it's the going to see fat Thor and they're in the, the truck <laughs> moment. Yeah, exactly. I actually did figure that exact scene, but just, you know, even more extended because it is a TV show and they yeah. had that. I did think it was a little weird though. This is very specific now when picky we're getting in, but I thought it was weird that they have, um, Falcon and Winter Soldier have that little chat where they're like throwing the shield like a frisbee to each other, but then two scenes later, Falcon like doesn't know how to do it in his montage. <laughs> I was like, that's really weird. Like he like forgot how to do it. He was just doing it two scenes ago. But anyway, that's very nitpicky. I don't care. But um, <laughs> I like the show. Ultimately, I thought One Division was better, but yeah, I don't know. No, that's I all think I have that's to fair say. Enough. <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, I can't say I've watched other stuff other than pretty much the film of the week in that show um mm. obviously starting my my practicum um as they call it practicum. Uh, that that's what they call it oh, okay. um that has taken up most of my most of my week um hopefully with obviously our snap lockdown situation i'll get to catch some stuff hopefully tomorrow so i'll have a lot more to talk about next week on the show but yeah, no, I just uh, pretty much stuck to wrapping that one up because I wanted to get that one wrapped up. And yep. I started rewatching Vikings because the show's finished now. So I kind of want to go through and uh, wrap that show up completely. Um, I've definitely been in a more show mood than a than a f- the the film mood. Um, That's fair enough. But uh, who knows how long our snap lockdown might last jake we might be going to the movies a lot when we actually get the opportunity to again um but fingers crossed that's sooner rather than later yeah exactly i've sort of already put myself in the mental mind state that i'm may not leave the house for another week or two so but so it'll be a nice surprise if if by tuesday everything's all all swell that um so i've i've kind of been on a similar thing when you say you're sort of more into shows uh, i ended up watching i didn't expect to but i ended up watching all three episodes of the uh don't f with cats on netflix yeah and uh have you seen this week no i don't even know what it's about oh okay so the, the premise like when i saw the trailers and stuff and mostly the reason i didn't watch it is because i thought i wouldn't be able to stomach it that's not that's not a um situation at all it's very they sort of edit around the actual snuff footage so don't worry about that. What? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so what the basically the premise is? It's about uh, I think 2011 or 2012 when a bunch of internet people discovered this like viral uh, video, sort of on, on like the more messed up side of the internet, uh, that sees this guy killing kittens, like putting them Jesus. in like bags and like vacuuming the bags so they run out of air. And there's a cat that's fed to a python, like all of this horrible, torturous shit that th- this was part of the reason I didn't want to watch it initially. Now, like I said... As an avid cat lover. Yeah, exactly. I, I gave Nala a hug after I finished the show. <laughs> but, um, so don't worry about that. I went into it and I, I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, okay, they kind of edited around the snuff. So eventually, 
like stuff gets really bad. I don't want to spoil like how bad it gets. So it's like at that point, it's like they probably legally can't show half the stuff. So that's fair enough. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, it's sort of a free part, free hour um, mini doco series on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I love the aspect that it sort of opens with that premise of these random ordinary people on Facebook, you know, joining this group of, you know, 50 people on Facebook with the whole goal of let's identify who did this and like, you know, acquire justice on this thing. And it becomes, now this is the thing, it's throughout the three episodes, it slowly turns into a kind of your formulaic crime show. Once like the police get involved yeah. in that, it sort of turns into what you would expect there. So I was kind of like eh, a little disappointed in that, but still that core concept was there of these sort of random people going to the ends of the earth to try and figure out where this person is. They're, you know, freeze framing and creating image sequences of the videos to be like, okay, well that vacuum you can only purchase in the U S so he's from this country and this and this and this, and like very excruciating detail and the detective work that went into it. Um, so I thought that was all really awesome. I love to see that. Mm -hmm. I was a little, um, not disappointed, but I'll say props, props too, because I think I've been spoiled lately with docos. I look at docos like Jim and Andy, I Am Greta, the Billie Eilish doco, where it's all very in the moment. It's all footage of yeah. things happening as they're happening, you know. All of I Am Greta takes place before the speech that made her famous, like really famous. So it's cool to see that in real time. And this doco doesn't do that. It can't because that footage doesn't exist. So it's mostly just, you know, interviews mixed in with this sort of uh, unfriended searching-esque internet imagery of people going to Facebook and posting stuff and archival footage. So I was a little disappointed in that, but on the same token, it's like, well, props to the editor, who I actually wrote his name down. Um, where is the editor? How did that... Oh, uh, Michael Hart, H-R-R-T-E, who also edited Free Identical Strangers, which I thought was interesting. Um, so props to him for the edit because it still moves at a really great pace and the story mm-hmm. is constantly making turns and it's developing and it's interesting. And um, so props to them even with that limited amount of footage. Um, but yeah, no, I really enjoyed the doco. I think the further it got away from the whole looking for justice angle and more into the, the character analysis, once we start to learn who this person actually is, it becomes a little bit of a, oh, well, you know, look what fame does to people. And it's people like you watching this documentary. It's your fault that these people do what they do. And I'm like, well, that's a bit bullshit. <laughs> I didn't appreciate that at the end, but um, otherwise I thought there was a lot of interesting ideas explored. So I like that. The only other thing I watched this week was The Speed Cubers. It's a 40-minute doco on Netflix, um, which is very deceptive. So... On the surface, it looks about speed cubers who are people who do speed runs of of the Rubik's Cube and down to, like, you know, getting it done in five, six, seven seconds, like really, really, like, insane numbers of these, like, geniuses doing this and about the competition of it. It's about that, but it's not really about that at all. It's actually about the friendship of two of the world champions, and I wrote their name down, Max Park and Felix Zemdegs, who are sort of two of the, the fastest Rubik cubers in the world, they can do it in five, six seconds, you know, open the cup, they have to do it immediately, it's really cool, Uh, but it's about their friendship, and it's about sort of their bonding, and it's about Max, who's this um, Asian kid with autism, and how this whole sort of thing uh, became a way for him to develop not only his finger motor skills and brain development, 
but even just his social ability to stand in lines, participate in tournaments, talk to strangers, and, and learn how to lose in competitions. So I thought that was kind of like a nice deceptive title for something yeah. that's actually like yeah, really yeah. sweet and smart and cute. So um, I recommend it. Speed Cubers on Netflix. It's good stuff. Yeah. Um, I actually did watch something in the last week, and I forgot because I watched it at the hot, top of last week. Okay. Um, unfortunately, I'm going – it won't be a – comprehensive uh, review because I didn't have too much to say about it, but it did remind me when you were bringing up the Don't F With Cats um, docu-series. I watched a sort of a crime murder um, documentary that integrated a lot of that sort of stuff called Why Did You Kill Me? And this is a 2021 release by Frederick Monk. Um, And it follows the Death of, it's about in the early to mid-2000s, and it, it follows the uh, shooting and death of a 24-year-old woman um, who um, was shot down by a, by a gang members by accident, and it sort of goes into this um, sort of just this case and how this case unfolds, trying to find this murderer, and how they utilised uh, her, her face on, on MySpace um, cause her this death was actually, ac- similar. <laughs> um, it was actually, they used MySpace to track down, um, the murderer because, um, this wasn't an intentional murder. This was definitely a hit on someone else in which she was collateral. So they actually didn't like recognize her face and everything. So they actually use her face mm. on one of the accounts and it allures them. Um, it was, it was okay. Um, I have I watched a similar sort of style documentary the year before called I think uh, to catch a murderer the neighbor next door or something like that and right. the coverage in that actually was more comprehensive than the coverage in this documentary. Yeah. Unfortunately, this documentary for the most part was uh, just pieces to camera, um, a model recreation, and honestly, a lot of the pieces to camera are quite dry. Um, and the characters weren't compelling nor likable and actually were all kind of um, sort of, for lack of a better term, they were dirty. They were they were people that weren't completely honest, even in their interviews. And when they were brought mm. up with information that they weren't honest, they sort of... I had a similar problem with, obviously, um, the uh, documentary I talked about a couple of weeks ago on the show... Um, I'm gonna have to double check what it was called again. Um, with the art gallery documentary, uh, made you uh, look. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same problem. Um, a lot of characters going like uh, pointing a lot of a lot of pointing fingers, but the reality was they all had something or or were doing stuff that wasn't entirely legal. Um, mm. And it's and then of course the detective in this situation was not really a compelling on screen character either. He was kind of a very. Uh, uniform performance so I, I didn't find it very compelling nor interesting which was kind of my okay. same takeaway i got with the, the the killer next door documentary um but i'm not the biggest fan of true crime documentaries um i probably could count on my hands how many of them i've actually found quite compelling and interesting so um because that that yeah that just that genre is i like it in the the true detective sense but not so much in the uh, <laughs> Like in the fictionalized sense, but yeah, when I've it's found actually a like of... written for TV, mm. <laughs> not exactly. just real life. Yeah, but um, obviously, real life. A lot of the time, they don't actually have uh, 
enough coverage really so it ends up being a lot of pieces to camera with a lot of he said she says um so they normally pad out 80 minutes when they should only they only have probably about 45 minutes of compelling content so that was my takeaway from that film no that's fair enough it sounds very similar to the complaints i had with don't f with cats in terms of not being enough sort of tangible in the moment footage but of course. At least, again, like I think they made it interesting enough. It still worked. I'm still glad I watched it. So, but not yeah, everyone can do that. So, yeah, that's fair enough. No worries. You got anything else you'd like to add? Um, no. Well, that's everything I've seen bar the film of the week in the last week. But uh, I'm happy to quickly go into career updates and final Oscar, I guess, thoughts or predictions or comments because I don't want yeah. to go too long. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll quickly start with saying that in the last week, technically it was before the last episode because you saw it in person where we last recorded, I bought a new DJI Air 2S drone, which is very exciting. And I've been... before Hopefully the snap this one doesn't down. go into uh, Serpentine. No. <laughs> Nowhere close. Now, well, this time I've, I've done all the right things, got the insurance, got all that jazz, so... Good um, stuff. It won't be too... From the money I've already spent, it won't be too much extra to repair a broken drone, but uh, I'm being much more cautious yeah, no, this time. <laughs> uh, so I bought that. Um, I've actually bought some new monitors. So hopefully, if you're able to come in uh, to my office for next week's episode, you'll hopefully be able to see these new 4K monitors I've ordered. So that's really exciting. Yeah. And uh, I did do one other thing. I'm actually going to save that until the coming to cinemas next week on the show. That's my little tease right there. Very exciting stuff. Well, I have no <laughs> career updates at all. Uh, Do you have any fun stories from Prack? <laughs> no, no, not well. I mean, yeah, but um, no, oh, nothing too crazy. It, it was it was a busy week. It was a busy week. Waking up right. at five was very um, refreshing this week. Uh, uh, I really, really been enjoying my time on Prack. The, the Waking up at five at the start of the week was like, oh my God, this is the worst. But by the end of the week, I was like, oh, you get a lot out of your day if you wake up yes. this earlier. Yeah. Like, you don't realize that. And I, I quite, I've quite enjoyed it by the end of the week. Uh, but um, yeah, no, it's been a, a, a... It's kind of funny because it's like I, I slept in, obviously, uh, yesterday and um, I woke up and I was like, quite lethargic and i was like maybe i should just keep waking up at five and seeing like i'm just going through the day and i did it today so oh nice um, i think i might just keep to doing that instead because and going to bed earlier because you get more out of your day no it's true because even if you intend to go to bed earlier you tend not to need to go to bed earlier so if you wake up at five like, say, four hours before you usually would wake up, that doesn't mean you have to go to bed four hours before you usually wake up. So you do no, literally you get more out of your day, which is yeah. nice. There you go. Well, I guess it's time for us to move into our... Oh, wait, Oscar predictions, beg my pardon. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, like you said, it's Oscar Eve. So I figured if there was any last changes... I've got the thing up here. There has been some developments that I want to put out there just so when it happens tomorrow, there's no surprises. I want to put it out yep. there. I want to say the new favourite for Best Supporting Actress, who originally was going to be Maria Bakalova because she actually was winning. I think she won at the Globes and stuff for the comedic... No, sorry. No, she didn't. Um, that went to Rosamund Pike. But, mm-hmm. you know, she was getting a bit of attraction. I think she won a few things. Not not quite the 
Maybe it was the SAG. I'm actually, I'm completely forgetting. My point is the new front runner is now Yon Yun Jun from Minari, who she won, I think she won the BAFTA? She won the BAFTA over Olivia Coleman, which is like Margot Robbie losing in the Australian awards or the actors. Like, mm-hmm. that happening is kind of ridiculous. So her winning an Oscar tomorrow is very, very likely, or today, if when you're listening to this. Um, let's see. So that's sort of a big change there. Um, interestingly, Chadwick Boseman lost his first one to Anthony Hopkins. Well, actually, no. When we did our The Father um, discussion, we found that out live on the show, that he won the BAFTA for that role. Yep. So that's the only thing standing in Chadwick Boseman's way for Best Actor Tomorrow. I still think he's going to win, but worth mentioning that he has some competition now. Um, let's see. And not much has really changed. Like, No Man Land is still going to sweep in terms of, like, the main updates that have happened since, like, the BAFTAs and the SAGs and yeah, critics and all of that stuff. Um, looking at the... The documentary space, I think, is actually pretty up in the air. I think The Favourite is slowly becoming my octopus teacher just because it's so readily available on Netflix. Um, but I still don't think that's a lock, so we shall see. Um, in terms of animated short, I think the big one people are talking about now is If Anything Happens, I Love You, which I don't know where to watch that. I know you can watch Burrow on Disney+. Plus. That's the one I think is really great, but um, I don't think that's going to win anymore. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Are there any last-minute thoughts on your end in terms of... No, I'm pretty concrete on sort of the ones I, I think I think it's amazing that we managed to cover all eight of the mm. Best Picture nominations. We've actually got quite a wide coverage. I think we talked a little bit about it last week on the show. Um, I'm pretty strong with who I who I think's going to win, who I want to win, but it's probably more the... Right, fair enough. ...the uh, accurate expression. Um, but, yeah, no, I'm really excited. I probably will actually... Tune in a little bit tomorrow, um, uh, just in and out. Um, yeah. But I I do think it's going to be pretty much right in terms of most of the awards are going to be won by, you know, Nomadland. And um, I would like to see Hopkins get up and I, I would love to see Kerry Mulligan get up. But mm. um, they would be my – if I was – and I would love to see – it would be kind of crazy if someone like Vintenberg won um, – that would for director for director um i think getting the nom was That'd enough but uh, it, he's it, definitely think, gonna win uh, international film definitely yeah and i i think that's well deserved so he'll pick up an oscar so it i think that's <laughs> that's going to be enough for me but you know isn't that a shame that someone like mads mickelson didn't get nominated uh shame i yeah you know i kind of find it weird that uh, the assumption going in is like, oh, well, not enough people watched another round. But then it got a directing nod. So it's like, clearly people did watch it and love it to give him a directing nod over Sorkin, who's like, you know, the 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 favourite. Like, oh, Trial, that's like the the obvious pick for half of these awards. But I mean, it, it, to be fair, it, the actor category this year is a tough category. Um, oh, it's incredible. So um trying to slot mads mickelson in there might have been very difficult um you I would, would say him over gary oldman yeah. yeah yeah absolutely um can you run through the best actor noms do you have them up readily so at the moment it's riz ahmed for santa metal chadwick boseman for ma Rainey's black bottom anthony hopkins for the father gary oldman for mank Stephen yon for minari yeah you kick you kick oldman out 
And you'd probably put either Coulier or... Um, yeah, you'd probably put Coulier or... Uh, or Stanfield? Yeah, I'm not sure who you'd give out of the two. I'd probably give it to Coolie. Coolie, I would have a better chance of winning. Um, right. Well, he's definitely going to win the supporting actor, but... So, yeah, I guess you'd give... Yeah. I mean, I'd give, I'd give Lakeith Stanfield a nod, um, next, especially next to all the others. Yeah, I I don't understand. Manx actually got quite a little bit of love at the Oscars, and I don't... I think it's solely because of its sort of ode to Hollywood esqueness mm. and I think it got a lot more love at the Oscars than it did at a lot of the other independent awards. So, um, yeah, uh, well, I mean, it got a lot of nominations everywhere. That that that's true. But I think, I mean, looking at this now, the only thing I think make there's a pretty good chance is probably in the production design area. Yeah, obviously, there's like makeup and costumes and stuff in within those collection of categories. Um, so I'm not saying specifically which one he's going to win, but. Um, yeah, because I think makeup, costume, and production design are three different, yeah, three different categories. I think Max can at least win one or two of those. Yeah, and um, I don't think it's going to win cinematography. I think I think people love Nomadland too much. They're just going to give it to that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. All right, well, that's uh, pretty much all I have to say. Do you have anything else you'd like to add, Jake? Yeah, I think the only thing I'll mention for those out there who want to watch the Best Picture noms, of which there are eight, I actually quickly wrote down where you can watch these um, if you are like us in Perth. And some of these are going to be a little inconvenient with the lockdown, but what can you do? So if you want to watch The Father, it is currently in cinemas at Hoyts and Luna. Uh, I think in Hoyts you have to go up to Carousel for that one. Um, And again, during lockdown, you're just probably not going to be able to see this film. I'm sorry. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is on VOD, so you can go on YouTube and actually just pay to watch it right now. Uh, Mank is on Netflix. Trial of Chicago 7 is on Netflix. Sound of Metal is on Prime. Uh, Promising Young Woman is in cinemas, but it is also in DVD and Blu-ray. You can order it off JB right now and probably get it in the next two days. That's cool. Uh, no Man Land comes to Disney Plus this Friday, so I'm actually spoiling a bit of what's coming out in the next week, but that's very exciting. And finally, Minari is currently in cinemas, and the DVD Blu-ray is set for next month in May. So that's where you can watch your best pictures. Well, it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Gallipoli. Australian sprinters face the brutal realities of war when they are sent to fight in World War One. Simple but effective. <laughs> oh, the logline. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just pretty it's, much it, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's true. So this is obviously being Anzac Day. This seemed like a given, and we're definitely trying to incorporate, especially our own national holidays, a bit more into the show. Um, we mm-hmm. have done it for the last two years, doing an Australian film on Australia Day and. This, this day has become increasingly more uh, important in Australian culture, I definitely think, in the last 20 or so years. Um, so, yeah, it seemed only fair to do this on the show, seeing as neither of us have ever watched this. No, see, you're right. I've, I've never seen Gallipoli, even though I've heard so much about it, and I love Peter Weir as a director. Truman Show is amazing. Um, yeah, but no, you're right. I think it is important to 
to reflect on Anzac and um, because I certainly don't give it enough attention myself. It's usually sort of those like you kind of forget what weekend it's going to be on, uh, that kind of attitude. But it was it did kind of hit harder watching this movie because I watched it for the first time this morning, and of course we're recording on the Sunday on Anzac Day, so even though it's a little tough because of the whole political nature of us being in the snap lockdown and not being able to properly go out and uh, appreciate Anzac the way we probably should be. Uh, but regardless of that, it was it did feel special to watch this film knowing this is what we're... When we talk about today, Anzac, this is what we're talking about. Looking at the screen, this is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, it also hits harder when it comes up with the little title card in the bottom that this took place, what, 106 years ago as we're recording this? Crazy. Yeah. And that it still it's, feels so relevant in a way. Yeah, and I, I definitely think um, this film kind of hits hits home in those sort of personal context levels um, and really takes it to another level being set in Western Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, following two Western Australians, I think that to me is, for, for Weir to go and do that, um, I found that incredibly, in, like kind of like a bit of a wow factor because um for a from a director in the night you know the early 80s to be making a film not only about australia but to focus on you know easily one of the most underdeveloped parts of australia at that time because of just how far away it was i mean we don't have a lot of western australian stories let alone have a lot of australian cinema period so and normally uh, for the most part, that stuff is focused elsewhere. It's not focused on us. Hmm. Um, so it, d- to... it did hit closer. It does because of that, eh? Yeah, and I think um, obviously this film is being used as a benchmark for capturing the Australian spirit and the the ideas, particularly of mateship. And you really couldn't um, you couldn't put it better when you watch it. I mean, it a hundred percent captures sort of that icon iconic um depiction that we we still use today Mm. yeah and um to that point of it being such a australian representative film it did take it was a part of the australian new wave as a film in the early 80s of course both peter weir and mel gibson are both sort of pioneers of that wave in a way and this only came out a couple years after mad max for example um so you know, Mel Gibson was on his rise with this film, but yeah, no, it's um, it's a very impactful film for Australians, and, and I think yeah. around the world, I think it's universally acclaimed. I think um, and and rightfully so. I th- I think it has a lot of uh, positives to take away from it. Um, I don't have too many critic critiques of it. Um, I think it, it it's a very simple story. I think um, and I think it really does follow chronologically what it was like to embody a young man at that time um, and sort of just the outlook Australian as a culture had on the First World War because obviously um, the First World War was majoritively, I mean, pretty much predominantly based in Europe, based in and around Europe and the Middle East Mm. and had... You know, you here, here you've got Australia, who is still very heavily tied to the crown, only having their federation not fourteen years earlier, 
um, so such a young independent country who still had heavy ties to the crown. Um, obviously, we still do as being in a, in a commonwealth, but we really only just started to find independence at the turn of the century. So um, I found it really interesting the how much of this film has... I mean, three quarters of this film, not a single bullet is shot in the sense mm. that they're not in a battle. They're not at Gallipoli until uh, like the last 30 minutes of the film, I think it is. Um and yeah, I found roughly. that yeah. uh, I found that really interesting. It's a two-hour film, and I think three quarters of the film is just the journey to get there. And I think the first half of the film is set in Australia, which I find really interesting. Um, especially, obviously, you look at the title and you think you're going to be spending a lot more time. If you look at stuff like, you know, Saving Private Ryan or 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 most uh, wartime films, they actually don't have they're not set at home for the most right. part i mean i mean saving private ryan i think is it 90 starts on d-day <laughs> it jumps right so, in. um apart from the the prologue and the epilogue i mean that's the like it's just all war the whole way through and even if you take series like the pacific or band of brothers it's the same sort of principle it's it's 80 or 90 percent in uh the war zones and only 10 to 20%, only enough to give a bit of background to characters and stuff. I mean, mm. I think Pacific does give it a little bit more depth to what's it like back home, but Band of Brothers especially is is following that sort of, you know, the wartime stuff. And so for this, this one to spend so much time exploring really the West Australian lifestyle, you know, and, and particularly that outback lifestyle and how long, you know, how kind of culturally explore those worlds before sending these, these, you know, going to actually going to Gallipoli. I found that really interesting because I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> oh no, it's, it's an hour in and we, we haven't even left. We haven't even left Perth. And the, the whole journey to get to Perth was such a, was a, such a monolithic mm. task. And I've, I mean, there's, I think when you get to the end, it's, it's very obvious why, the film spends so much time on that specific trek, the literal uh, on-ground, on-boots trek to Perth from from that sort of remote area in Australia. But to your point, no, that's exactly it. Because when I was first watching from not that I was ever like, when are we getting to Gallipoli? I feel like Millhouse. When are we getting to the fireworks factory? Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I, I, was I wasn't it was so much. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because what I was like, I was thinking the same thing of, ah, oh, well, this is, you know, if this film feels very classic and all, the way it's shot, the music, um, the presentation, it's all very classic, um, which goes to Peter Will's excellence as a filmmaker. So I just thought, okay, they're just taking their time to establish these characters, to establish home life. You're right, that's what they're doing. Um, and I was never like, oh, when are we going to get to Gallipoli? It kind of hit me at a certain point where, like, I see what they're doing. And... It all goes back to that final shot, that final ending. I don't want to spoil it yet, even though the film's like you know forty five years or however old it is. But there's something very specifically being said here, and you're right. Like other war films, that sort of jump into it, and it's more about sort of the tactical, the wartime tactics of what they're doing, and and this and that, and you're know, the wider scope of the story. This is a story about two Aussie blokes, two young Aussie guys with kind of differing perspectives. But it's ultimately about them and their friendship and the loss of innocence. Because 
we know how short-lived the fight is. And not just the fight, but the characters and their fight specifically, how short it is. And I, I feel like I'm just giving it away just by emphasizing the word short there. But I, I think to your point, you're right. The journey is getting too Gallipoli. And, and what's the journey within there with the characters? Yeah, I, I think it's it's really interesting to take the approach of... Um, obviously, this film, I think especially, although recognised internationally as like a successful film, this film is for... Uh, like, takes serious consideration for Australian audiences. Um, because, you know, this was uh, the birthplace of, of the ideology of mateship. Um, mm. like if it's cited in social cultures, we cite it on the daily as Australians in just our colloquial language. Um, but I really think, you know, it, it was birthed out of the, I mean, it's what the Anzac spirit is. And, and I think the, the reason they take so much time to get to the, the foreshores and even when they get to the foreshores, they don't, a lot of these young men really don't comprehend the world they're in. Um, is to give that sense of that sort of Damocles, that sense of impending doom, because we know what happened to a lot of these young men. You know, we mm. we know that a lot of them aren't coming back, and only in the last maybe ten to fifteen minutes do they really finally start to understand. And that's that that's that separation between objective discourse and subjective discourse. You know, we as the viewers know what happened to a lot of these young men, and a lot of them don't come home. A lot of them, we know that they were sent to the wrong shore. They were pretty much just there as cannon fodder for a, a failed British military strategy. And, and and we're taught that even as younger kids in our schooling system that we were sent off pretty much to just be kind of meat shields because the people that were in charge didn't really regard our life and safety. And mm. I find it really interesting that this film builds these characters up and really takes the time to build it up. And, you know... Obviously, so when we finally get to the point where they're faced with the, the thing that they've been talking about, we get to see their fear. We get to see their real human emotions. And then we really get to grasp that they are nothing more than young boys, not men, going off to, to die. And that really hits home. Yeah, um, I think... I'm just going to call it now. I'm going to struggle to talk about this film anymore without us just putting a complete spoiler. Like, let's just call it sort of thing you've had I mean, it's a, chance, it's, a people. it's a historical event it's a hundred it year old historical event. it is it is but i'm pretty sure these two characters so the, the mel gibson character and the mark lee character they're fictional as far as i understand yeah yeah, yeah. so um we're gonna spoil their fates pretty much now because i'm gonna mm -hmm. it's our podcast league, so i'm gonna call it oh, okay <laughs> the or the audience isn't gonna say and what we talk about um <laughs> you know so Let's yeah, let's jump into spoilers here. Yeah, of course. I think the the futility and sort of the pointlessness of of this specific strategy, you could argue maybe war in general, but mm -hmm. let's talk about specifically this Gallipoli campaign. Um, was so clear because so much of the story is these two friends trekking the desert together to get to Perth to become a part of this bigger thing that's bigger for themselves. But then Archie dies maybe four seconds into the real battle. And there's so much I can talk about with that last shot. But just the overall meaning of the film. Because it's not about the wider events of Gallipoli. It's about these people. And the fact that the film ends 
the second that our protagonist ends his life or his life is ended it that that's what tells you that this story is about this these specific characters and yeah. it's a shame because Archie in particular had you know a whole life ahead of him he was this young handsome athletic guy he was already basically beating world records as a runner and now his life is gone and the film really showcases like up oh, it's gone that's it end of movie with that final sort of fade out that freeze fame fade out yeah it's brilliant it's it is it's a brilliant way of, of that whole last 20 minutes is a mixture of tension doom and and, and sadness mm. and i think you're you're hitting the nail on the head there that it becomes it's not a wide scope story it's a personal story and that and that's the same sort of platform that something like saving private ryan is it it's it's very much the scope of those characters in that in that film it's not about world war 2 as a as a whole um it, i mean the story is very personal in that narrative it's about getting that you know saving private ryan um because you know <laughs> because it's about making sure that one of her sons comes home because the others have been killed right um so it's a very personal scope in a larger conflict and yeah you're 100% right this is about two people that have founded their friendship and have kind of obviously what i love about it is is they're exploring the world and by exploring the world they're exploring the australian identity they're exploring mateship and there are so many layers to just the characters that they meet along the way even for a couple of seconds as they're even moving around gallipoli and you know they they create like a little cash pool and if one of them gets shot they get insurance paid <laughs> um and it's that larrikin oh, identity, and it's like the guy who goes, oh, well, it's death beyond this point because there's a machine gun, and he gets a can and he sticks it out and has a laugh at it because they can't go past that point. It's, uh, Archie and, and, and the the thing is, it's like, you know, the characters of, of, of Archie and I'm not sure what Mel Gibson's Frank, Frank um, they deliberately have two polarising points of view about this war. Yep. Because they are trying to encapsulate the mindset of every viewer, um, uh, both when this was in the cinema and even in hindsight watching, and probably the the political point of view of a lot of people. I mean, it the the funny thing is, the further they get towards you know high society, Archie and Frank in Western Australia, the cultural shift of that point of wartime it, it changes, you know. Of course, the upper class, richer people who are living comfortable lives go, oh, yeah, let's send our young boys off to war. It's the right thing to do. You know, our government's telling us to do it. But, you know, the wanderer they find out in the middle of the, the deserted lake doesn't even know there's a war going on. And I think that hits the nail on the head for the two points of, of contact. And even their opening dialogue uh, with Frank and the other three um, kind of ensemble cast members they do have a, a decent part of screen time because frank is for the most part he's probably our central protagonist character because we spend more time with him than we do archie i think I, um, yeah it's interesting because archie is definitely like the heart and soul of the film yeah but i think i think frank mm. is the catalyst for the viewer i think he's the way more of the he's way more self-aware of the doom and death that is going to befall the characters mm. um whereas archie embodies probably more the anzac spirit um yep. so he's more that character whereas 
Mel Gibson's character, Frank, is very much more real. He's very much more, like, well, practical is probably more. Yeah, the, I would, the, yeah, I wouldn't say real, but I know what you practical. mean. Practical. Um, he, he knew from the moment his hesitance to join the war was, you know, was dragged along up until the point where he wasn't hanging out with Archie anymore and Archie was going off, and that's the only point when he elected to kind of, because he had literally nothing else left. Um, mm. And as soon as, you know, the conflict ensues, he can't cope because he knew this was going to happen, even when he was right back in Western Australia. So I think, um, yeah, I, I find it really interesting, sort of the two characters and, and their, you know, how we follow their story. It's interesting because, yeah, these, so the two, like you said, they've kind of got these sort of differing perspectives because you're right, you have one who's like the young, full of the Anzac spirit, wants to go out and, and serve his country and... And like you said, that like I don't remember a lot of the ta- the teachings that I had in school regarding Anzac and World War One and all that. But that is the one thing I absolutely pertained was I don't like to use the word naivete, but there were a lot of kids wanting to join the war and serve their country for reasons that were either you know oh the girls like a uniform that's a line mm-hmm. from the film you know the girls like a uniform or absolutely. you know oh like we're all mates let's all go together it'll be fun it was and a for the poli- most part it, it is it was a political mm-hmm. and social stance like that's right. what it was i mean look at the scene like i said the closer they push to civilization when they go to that ranch and 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 frank's like oh i'm going to perth for business and then archie's like no but i'm joining up and the the difference in their reaction from that upper class mm. stance and of course there's that beautiful girl there that they both recognize as a beautiful girl but she is way more positively responding towards archie being like i'm joining the light horse brigade and um way more uh, distant towards frank being like well i'm just going for business i don't have to join because conscription wasn't an option that like it wasn't a thing there it was mm. totally these guys signed on because of propaganda and social social stance and political pressuring and and class pressuring um because it was an expectation of their family or it was an expectation of 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 class or it was just a yeah a social expectation well like you said uh yeah oh it'll be fun yeah and and to be fair 90 percent of this film they are kind of having fun <laughs> out there for a little bit but yeah and, and that, then you, hmm? oh, no, you say? no you go for it Okay, thank you. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> no, I was going to say, well, like, with Frank, yeah, he does have that mindset that, frankly, I feel like I would be more like Frank in that situation. Not from a necessarily, I'm informed and I know how silly this all is. More from the cowardice standpoint of, like, making excuses to not go out to war because he doesn't really have a good answer for any of these people. And, and you know, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. We can talk about that. But when I was watching this, I was sort of getting caught up in the Anzac spirit as well. And even I'm someone who doesn't necessarily want to go out to war right now and get shot at. But when you watch this film and you see that's the majority perspective, you understand why people get excited about it. Particularly in World War One, and I know this from a from multiple points of view, but because mm. um, I explored it a little bit on the the Downton Abbey show, um, okay. which takes place also through World War One. And they they explore the fact that this was the one war in which social pressures to join the war as a young man was astronomically high. Mm. Um, 
So with World War II, people joined because they knew it was a legitimate world worth fighting for because from an Australian standpoint, Japan was a viable threat because in hindsight, even 10, 15 years after World War I, Australia knew that that war was a waste of time from their point of view because there was no way that they were, you know, and they even commented in this film, it's like most people don't even know where Turkey is or Turkey is literally right. on the other side of the world, whereas Japan's control over the Pacific was enough reason, was a justifiable reason to, to join the war. And we didn't join that war until a little a little later on, although we technically joined it when Britain joined it. It, it wasn't like as hands-on as this war was. Um, and then, of course, Vietnam was always met with, with kind of negative press across the board. So this was the war that, yeah, there were a lot of political pressures for young men to join, social pressures to join, because mm -hmm. um, they were fed that there was a bigger menace than what there was. But really, because we were only, you know, 10, 15 years removed from from pure control of the crown over our country, that that latch was still there. That that expectation was still there, and um, it's it's definitely present in this film, presented in multiple scenes. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Was this the wanderer they find who says something like, "Well, he's surprised that the fight's happening in Turkey." Yeah, well, Australians are going because to Turkey. it's a really good exchange between Frank Archie and the wanderer. Because the, the the Wanderer, he, he, you know, he's like, oh, well, what's this war about? Oh, Germany started it. And and then he goes, oh, how did it start? He's like, and Archie doesn't actually know. He doesn't know, no. <laughs> like, he doesn't know that it was an Archduke from Austro-Hungaria that got assassinated that led to this chain reaction of alliances. Uh, a lot of people, unless you comprehensively research, can still not tell you how World War One really started because um, it was basically just a domino effect of alliances and ended up a bunch of battles in Europe and, and Turkey were on the side of Germany and we got sent off to fight Turkey um, on the other side of the world. Um, but it's a really interesting scene because, yeah, because Mel Gibson's character, Frank, goes basically he's like, oh, we'll just ask Archie. He knows. He knows everything. And he doesn't know anything. He just knows Germany started it. Turkey's their ally. We're being sent there. And and then he goes, well, Turkey's a long way away. And it's like, oh, but we don't want them to come to Australia. Mm. And Wanderer looks confused because he's like, that's on the other side of the world. <laughs> well, a... my, my interpretation of his, not confusion, because the line he has, actually wrote this fear of spoiling what my highlight scene for the film may be. Uh-oh. Um, his response is, well, they're welcome to it. You know, come here. And my assumption is, well... He just admitted he's never been to Perth. He's never been to, like, a big city. The outback is his life. So mm. he's probably sitting there thinking, what are Turkey going to do here? There's nobody here. There's nothing here. Mm. That's kind of my assumption of his headspace. And I, and I like how all three of them sort of... Ha how little they all know collectively, which is really interesting. But again, yeah. it's hindsight. Absolutely. Um, so I I think that that's... Um, that's all of the key points that I had to discuss. You got anything else you'd like to touch on? Yeah, I'm just looking for my, my notes here. So we talked a bit about the difference between Archie and Frank, who I kind of actually compared to Han Solo a little bit. That just might be the Mel Gibson-esque. I mean, it, it's definitely the Luke Skywalker Solo dynamic. Oh, um, yeah, kind of, yeah. Like, for, especially from New Hope, like blonde, blue-eyed, kind of uh, naive, and then, yeah, the more practical. Although I would say Gibson... 
Oh, but Gibson does. It just has a much sadder ending. It, instead of Darth, yeah, it's literally it's the moment when Darth Vader is going down the trench, about to kill Luke, and then Han Solo comes. But that scene would end with Vader shooting Luke. <laughs> That's the equivalent. <laughs> it's literally the equivalent. Um, and but, Mel Gibson being in a cryogenic chamber, being like, "No," or whatever. Yeah, he says I think um, <laughs> screaming coverage in that scene was really good except for the gibson reaction oh i I love that that it stays on him from sort of that medium wide really i would have liked a little bit more maybe i would like a bit more drama but that's just me everything else in that i think that scene like that whole sequence is just immaculate um Mm. i think my the biggest critique i have for the film and this actually seriously bugged me um was the non-diegetic soundtrack. Really? Uh, the synthetic music. Okay. okay I, I didn't mean. get it at all. At all. It was the one thing I just couldn't wrap my head around. It felt like the most 80s thing that made literally no motivated sense to me. Um, I just couldn't wrap my head around why that choice for why not something based around yeah. the time because i think this is my my point and it's weird because from what i remember from other weird films um he's really good he doesn't do a lot of his his soundtracks are very correspondent to the film and this one felt mm. polar like it, it maybe it was a young director's misstep or or an intention that kind of went askew but to me he's true to reality storytelling in all the films even the ones that delve into science fiction territories are very you know very overt and everything about this film is so real and and tactile and feels like we're exploring two people of this time frame it doesn't feel like an out of time piece it felt really weird that he, that election of, of soundtrack choice, it didn't make any sense to me. And I tried to wrap my head around it, but I couldn't. Yeah, yeah it's interesting, because I, I did make a note of how, like, the main theme that plays, like, over the opening credits, and um, even when we heard it last week, when we were talking about going to watch Gallipoli in the next week, was just, like, that opening theme music is so good. It's just so classic, and it sort of preps you for this melancholic journey. But then you're right, then they have this sort of more techno synth sound every time it's they're so running 80s. or sprinting or there's action. Yeah, there's a motif. Like I'm I'm not denying that there is a direct motif when it, when they're running and sprinting, that music is playing. Like I, I can see the correlation. I just don't get that's the choice for motif music mm. made. Yeah, and it seriously bugged me because it felt like you nailed this you're exploring this early west australia outback time and you're you're spending so much time in this world and you really do get immersed in it and then you went to egypt and you did the same thing you know they're playing football under the you know it's out of a picture book some of his Mm. you know and i think that it was just so weird it was so jarring and it made no sense to me um okay i'm i'm i have nothing i have no defense for that (laughs) Fair. Like yeah, I can't blame you. That's fair enough. Because I, I again, I thought it was strange. It didn't really bother me that much. But I, I yeah, that's fair enough. I, I think you're right. This is it's a, it's an eighties sort of. Um, yeah, it's it the one like thing that can. It's the one thing that clearly tells you this film is in. This film was shot in the eighties. Yeah, like, that's fair enough. 
That's the one thing. <laughs> now, I guess before we go into highlight scenes, I want to talk a bit about, you know, people talk about this film and, and we talk about its grounded sort of realism and, and the depiction of World War One and Gallipoli and Australians and all of that. Um, so some people had issues with the depiction of, I guess, specifically the British side of it. I'm just, so I'm on the Wikipedia page for historical accuracy right now. Um, and basically the gist of what I was reading is that certain things were changed or said, um, to put the British commands in like a lower regard. It's like the comment of, oh, they're down at the beach drinking tea. It's like, well, that's not what they were actually doing at this point in time. You know, just little like changes like that, little comments like that, to sort of put them in a more negative night. When I was reading, based on what I'm reading here, is that it seems like Peter Weir had changed some of this stuff for dramatic effect. Yeah. So I think it comes back to um, so what I what I what I encapsulate with that is I don't think I mean at the end of the day this isn't a true story. This is a fictionalized story based mm-hmm. on a true event, and that's a key distinction. Right. What he was trying to encapsulate in that last 20 to 25 minutes was the military incompetence of the British, which is true. Um, But he was trying to do it in a 20-minute nutshell, not a whole campaign. Because like you said, this story is not about the Battle of Gallipoli. It's not the whole time frame. It's Mm. following this specific event. And yeah, look, they might not have specifically asked them to run into open gunfire. Like, no one's... No one's... I, I, For me, what they're trying to encapsulate is the fact that these commanders didn't really know what they were doing and we were kind of following them because we were a byproduct of their colonisation. And the only reason we were there was because this was Britain's war. And that, I think that's what the theology is. And the finale, the final sequence is to highlight the fact that we were fighting someone else's war and we didn't have any reason to be there. And we lost a mm. lot of good people. Um to the fact that um, we were fighting a war that literally had nothing to do with us and had no implication on the rest of the world. Unlike World War II, which directly did have implications on the rest of the world and affected the rest of the world in one way or another, this war was a European war in which people from the other side of the other hemisphere were brought into Mm. just because they were colonised by them first. Um, And I think that yeah, the historical accuracy is probably... Yeah, it's probably not historically accurate to a specific event that took place. But what he's trying to encapsulate in that 20 minutes is there were a bunch of commanders who were sitting on a beach or sitting drinking tea, I think, is an exasperation for the fact that there were a bunch of people away from all the fire making all these decisions that they had no uh, strategic leadership on. Um, right. You know, there was this upper-class echelon telling a bunch of people that they, you know socially didn't actually have a lot of respect for. I mean, we watched a film, uh, The Nightingale, uh, a couple of years back now, and... Episode 30-something. Yeah, and and that film directly explores the disproportionate relationship between Australians and the British. And that opinion, that social opinion, has actually resonated for a long period of time post-settlement. I mean... At the end of the day, who were we? We were the convicts. We were the rejects from that country sent over. So um, their opinion of us didn't change for the longest time. Um, and I think this film just showcases that social residual effect. Yeah, that's fair. I, I guess I definitely agree with you in terms of it seems nitpicking like, oh, well, this this 
little bit here wasn't accurate. This little bit was sort of exaggeratory. But um, the general idea, you're right, is like, well, that's what they are saying, is that the British command didn't really know what they were doing in certain areas. I think, I think just that, that general blanket statement is what the film's trying to say. And it actually does say at the end of this Wikipedia article, it says, however, the British command's low regard for the discipline of Australian troops behind the lines has been widely documented by earlier historians, uh, such as Charles Bean and more recent ones from Les Carlin and other oral traditional of the survivors. So, yeah, it's it's people are upset about it, but it's I mean, like there's the, also evidence completely in favour of the film. Yeah, at the end of the day, um, it's been widely documented. It was a failed campaign, and the superiors were them. So I think what he's trying to encapsulate in 20 minutes of film, not months of a campaign, mm. key distinction, is there were incompetent commanders who sent people needlessly to their death. And we could... I'm sure we could follow... There is actually a Gallipoli show, a miniseries that just got put on Netflix. Yes, it uh, did. And Epic. I'm sure that that show probably draws out a bit more historical accuracy to that incompetence. But what we is trying to do, because like we said, three quarters of this film has... They don't even land on the shores of Gallipoli for a majority of the film. Um, it's trying to encapsulate the fear of these young boys, not men who were sent off to die for a war that they actually didn't have any comprehension about. So we're trying to talk about that naivete of Australian, the mate, the mateship construct and the Australian and Anzac spirit. Mm. No, I think you're bang on. Cool. I, All like, right. I like that. Would you <laughs> that like little to... re there. Uh, yeah. Good, good stuff. Uh, check out my uh, article later in the day. <laughs> I have an article. Would love to write an essay on this, but I'm sure 10 million essays exist about this film. Um, I think it'd be 10 million and one. That's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, Jake. Were you ready to move into highlight scenes? Let's do it. So, I'll I'll put two because we've already talked extensively about what would probably be my highlight scene, which is the exchange between um, Archie, Frank, and the Wanderer, and just again about how sort of little perspective they each have, and even that comment Mel Gibson makes. It almost feels like he's purposely trapping Archie because he knows that he knows nothing about the start of the war. Yep. So it's just lots of little clever things in that conversation and the perspective um but the other thing and i've got to mention this again i don't think i mentioned it yet with the ending um and the stance that it freeze frames on with him falling back i actually noticed this in the very first scene with because it's obviously the poster shot the very famous poster shot that we've talked about off the air of him getting shot and his neck sort of being thrown back that's almost the exact same stance he makes when he's crossing the finish Finish line line. in all of his runs that and little more meta situation here peter will excellent filmmaker is that it reminded me instantly of the robert capper photograph probably his most famous photograph of the split second shot of a man in world war one getting shot in the head and dying and um i had to do that for some high school thing i remember doing research on robert capper and that's easily his most famous image if you look it up it looks this it was clearly the inspiration for this final shot in the film and i thought that was very clever so Cool. Um, I would have to say my highlight scene. Oh, that's a toughie. Um, yeah, just one. <laughs> it's, it is really tough. I'd probably say it's the it's the one, two, three uh, of the how fast can you run. Um, so this is a simple uh, sort of... They call back uh, to this three times. Um, yeah. And 
obviously the opening scene which you've just brought up and they call back to it just before the the race which i think you would say is probably the the tipping point at uh, the end point of act one and then they bring it's it back definitely in still act. act one yeah um and then they bring it back at the end of obviously at the end of act three i i just love the correlative effect of using utilizing a line three times it's that rule of three um in writing it's a simple rule but when it's done right it, it is so wildly effective because obviously context affects all three of them in different ways um you know in the first one it's his relationship with his i think it's his father or it's at least his patriarchal mentor um he refers to him by I'm his pretty first... sure that was his father i think it's his dad um and then of course the second time is when he actually meets mel gibson's character for the first time which is obviously the spark of a new relationship while the ending of of another one and of course the third one is is the context of that is okay. it's really that whole last sequence. Um, I have to give a quick shout out to the performance of the general, the Australian general who I'm just going to have a quick geese at his name. Let's see if I've got it on here. I should point out, It was actually his uncle. I just looked it up. Okay. I assumed so it was patriarchal figure is what I went right. with. No, fair enough. Um, got it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not getting the general's name up immediately. Yeah. I want to shout out to the uh, the the three boys that are Mel Gibson's friends. They're all very good in this film. I'm just looking at the cast list. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm just curious. <laughs> Major Barton, there it is. Oh, it's Bill Hunter. Was it? Was it really Bill Hunter? Wow. I think so it was. what you know. No, I, I didn't know it that. Can't <laughs> Anyway, he was he was great in that last sequence. I mean, that whole last sequence with the the waiting and the whistle blow and and it, it just incredible, it, incredibly scary, incredibly powerful, and incredibly tense. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think we've been shown that sequence before, at least that last that last push. And um, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a great film. It's, it can easily go up with one of the most iconic Australian films of all time. Absolutely. It's a landmark. It's a landmark Australian film. No worries. Well, Gallipoli is currently out pretty much just on wide release on DVD. Um, it's not on any streaming platforms. Uh, no, it's very annoying. I've got the... Jeez, uh, I can't even read because the light's completely gone, Zeke. <laughs> <laughs> the commemorative edition on Blu-ray. So what is that? Is that like a leather-bound book, is it? Yeah, yeah, which, to be honest, the packaging of this whole thing's a little shoddy, but it's cool. It also comes with this top two, or this wooden top two thing, which I actually want oh, to utilize. Up. That's two up. Two up, that's it. I'm thinking of two up. That's a convict. I act- yeah, I want to actually utilize this in... Oop, I dropped a coin. I want to actually use it, utilize it in five seconds, Zeke, before we get to the very end of the show, and I'll tell you why. In a moment. No worries. Uh, Two up was yeah, a so you can yeah. buy it on DVD or Blu-ray. It was a game by uh, Convicts. It's a gambling game. It's our favourite kind of Australian. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Well, speaking of streaming platforms and what's new in cinemas, Jay, hit us up with it. Yeah. So uh, not a crazy week. This is obviously well, a lot of this is up in the air because of our recent snap lockdown. So we'll get to that in a moment. Of course. Uh, coming. Yep. So coming to like I mentioned earlier, No Man Land is coming to Disney Plus this Friday the thirtieth. So it's very exciting. Absolutely recommend that film. Uh, coming to stand this week is Darren Aronofsky's Pie, which is his debut feature. So if you're interested in that, it's coming. 
uh, coming to Netflix this week is what we originally knew as the animated film called Connected, which we always joked about because it's very similar to Disconnected. Yep. Um, now, I, I guess this was COVID-affected and is now coming straight to Netflix. Is that my understanding of it? And they've actually changed the name to The Mitchells versus The Machines, which I actually think is a better title. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. got a little bit more in it. Yeah, it's it's I mean it's cloudy with a chance of meatballs esque, you know. <laughs> I, I buy it, I buy it. Anyway, it features a quirky, dysfunctional family's road trip upended when they find themselves in the middle of a robot apocalypse. And and as you mentioned earlier, Zeke, the twenty fifteen miniseries Gallipoli is also now on Netflix. So could have not mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and coming so coming to Prime this week is Bon Joon Ho's Snowpiercer, which uh, we both like. We both like that enough. Yeah. And coming to cinemas, again, this is all subjective, so keep in mind, uh, Mortal Kombat actually came out last week. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, it did. Um, yeah, it came out in uh, cinemas. Yeah, big budget, HBO Max film, shot in Australia, so that's cool. Um, that came to cinemas last Thursday, and you can't watch it on binge or anything like that, so if you're with us, you're going to have to wait till the lockdown ends to catch it, which is unfortunate, but I'm, I'm keen to see it. I'll see it. Um, now, initially... This is what I teased earlier, Zeke, yep. in my career section. So last Thursday, I attended the Greenfield Backlot premiere. Um, so this is a film that sees protagonist James and uh, aspirations of rebuilding a life with his former girlfriend, Kelly, a short-lived when her brother confides him with a volatile secret. So this premiered on Thursday. Um, me and my friend Kish got some coverage of the event. Um, so there's photos out. We're going to get a video soon. Uh, but of course... That was the only time you could actually end up watching the film. Its backlot run was meant to take place from then through to Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Of course, now lockdown has completely ruined those, uh, ruined that screening run, which really sucks. So I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen because initially the film was going to come to Luna starting Tuesday. So there's a good chance if lockdown ends on Tuesday, the film just starts running at Tuesday on at Luna, and that's how you can see it. But it's a shame you can't catch it. I, I don't know. Maybe they'll do another backlot run. We'll see. It's very confusing. Uh, and the other film that is meant to come to cinemas later this week, we've both seen the trailer for this week, is Land, which sees Robin Wright start and direct in the story of a local hunter who brings a grieving lawyer back from the brink of death after she retreats to the harsh wilderness of the Rockies. And you, you seem keen on this. Yeah, I like these kind of films. These like solitude, um, man versus or woman versus nature in this case. Um, yeah. So I'm very intrigued. I'll give it. Yeah. I would definitely give it a watch. If I'm, uh, I don't know if this is Robin Wright's directorial debut or not. It might be. Might not be. I have no idea. But um, that's cool. Nevertheless, yeah. hopefully um, we'll so be yeah. able to give it a watch by next week. Exactly. It's just the, the snap lockdown has really kind of messed things up, didn't it, Zeke? Yeah. It, <laughs> just a little bit. It's as of right now looking positive, but obviously by the time this show, uh, this episode comes up. We might be in a different situation. Who knows? It's it's literally moment to moment. so Exactly. But that's how it goes. Yeah. We're actually not catching any of those next week on the show. We're actually moving into another director's corner. Jake, mm. you came up with a great idea for this one. Yeah. So I figured very similar to um, sort of the reverse way of which we did uh, Thomas Vintenberg, where we did a director corner for him, and then we did and uh, another Coppola. film of his the week. Oh, yeah, and Sophia Coppola. Yeah, exactly right. And I'm pretty uh, sure even Tarantino. Oh, no. Um, was that... I think That's... close. Yeah. I think it was like one or two episodes between Pulp Fiction, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but 
Um, so yeah, actually, the, yeah, you pointed as it. We've actually done this many times, so mm. I don't know what I'm bragging about. <laughs> uh, we're gonna do another Peter Weir film because why not? Uh, yes, but normally what we do is we do the director's corner first. And that is then true. Do the follow-up film. <laughs> now we're doing it the other way around. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna go back even earlier in his career into the mid seventies, and next week on the show we're gonna be watching Picnic at Hanging Rock. What we see and what we seem are but a dream, a dream within a dream. You must learn to love someone else apart from me, Sarah. I won't be here much longer. The girl, the boy, the school. The Rock. Fragments of a mystery from a summer long ago. Good morning, girls. Good morning, Mrs. Appleyard. Well, young ladies, we are indeed fortunate in the weather for our picnic to Hanging Rock. I have instructed Mademoiselle that as the day is likely to be warm, you may remove your gloves once the drag has passed through Wood End. You will partake of luncheon at the picnic grounds near the Rock. Once again, let me remind you the rock itself is extremely dangerous. And you are therefore forbidden any tomboy foolishness in the matter of exploration, even on the lower slopes. Mystery and suspense is now a spellbinding motion picture. Madame, something terrible has happened. Appleyard College, a girls' private school, plans a summer picnic to Hanging Rock in Victoria. However, things turn bad when a few students and a teacher go missing at the picnic. Ooh, isn't this based? This is based off a true story, isn't it? I'm guessing yes. And there's also other versions. Yeah, so I'm intrigued Mm -hmm. to see how this uh, this pans out. this is, yeah, I think this is one, I mean, if before our Decades Challenge, this is probably, is this one of the earliest Director's Corner we've done? Um, I think we did. Earliest? Like, in terms of. What do you mean? I guess it's pretty, I think this is the, the this is the oldest Australian film we've done, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Um, Probably, yeah, 1975. We're going a fair while back now. Yeah, so it'll be intriguing to see how this yeah. one uh, this one pans out. Jake, you wanted to do something with your two-up game. Yes, <laughs> so I have the two-up game, which is funny because we have video of each other that we can see, yeah. you see me holding this, but the audience, of course, doesn't. So, all right, I've got a coin with a kangaroo on it. I'm guessing that's tails, tails. and then a coin with a head on it. And uh, What years are, are they? Going... Well, they just, do they have a year on them? Um, it just says cor- uh, commemorative. Oh, they're commemorative. Do they have real pennies? Those are those are Australian pennies. Yeah, this is this came with the Gallipoli the blu-ray that i bought for it so what i want to do zeke because mm-hmm. i thought about this we've been doing our quotes at the start of every episode we've been doing it for 
a while now. Yep. Nearly a year, actually, now that I think about it. Going back to the 80s or 70s? I think the 80s, 80s. maybe. Yeah. Um, and what we do, of course, is switch every 10 uh, episodes. So every decade we switch. At the moment, you're quoting to me. Uh, but, of course, next week we're going to do our 2020 quote. And then the next week will be the last one. Because we really... It's going to get a little tricky to start quoting films from the 1920s. We haven't really seen that many of them yep. to make it all interesting. So what I want to do as the final quote we're going to be able to do, at least for a long time, uh, in episode 121, so not next week's episode, the week after, I'm going to flip this. We're going to call it our coins, and whoever wins gets to pick whether they want to give the quote or receive the quote. How does that sound? Is that going to be like the, the final decider? Like... Ah, I, I, yeah, why not? <laughs> Champion of quotes. We'd have to check the tally what the score is. Ah, um, uh, yeah. Over the, I guess we could do that. Over maybe. the two the two decades. Um, yeah, no, let's go for it. Um, cool. So, all right, what what are you calling? We got two coins here. So, what if it's one of each? Well, you can call it if you want it to be one of oh, each. Oh, okay. Or yeah, cool. Two heads, two I'll tails. Go with, um, I'll go with one of each. Okay, I'm gonna go with two tails. Go for it. All right, this is going to go really badly. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to do it very lightly ab- away from my keyboard. All right. One of each. Congratulations. Yes. So what do you, do you want to give me a quote or do you want me to quote to you? Um, I'm going to quote to me, I think. Oh, okay. Cool. Bring it on. It's been a while, hasn't it? Bring it on. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's go. Uh. I oh. like it. So next week we're going to do our 2020 quote. You're going to quote me. I'm going to get my final score of the, for this decade of films. And then I'm going to give you the last quote for Very 2021. exciting stuff. Mm. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Sig. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Picnic at Hanging Rock. <laughs> <laughs>